Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. It's always good to learn from your own mistakes, but it's possibly better to learn from other people's mistakes. So in today's video, let's look at some of the most expensive mistakes made by some of the biggest and best known companies out there, some of which are quite funny. And if nothing else, you can feel good that whatever mistakes you've made at work, they're probably not as big as any of these. Now, one of the biggest missed opportunities in business history happened back in 1999, when Excite was a distant number two to Yahoo in terms of search traffic on the internet. Excite was seen at the time as the technology play of the two companies, as it was a true search engine while Yahoo was more of a web directory. There were dozens of search engines competing at the time, and most were busy transforming themselves into what was known as internet portals, a sort of front page of the internet, as this was the business model favoured by investors at the time. Larry Page and Serge Brin had a research project initially named Backrub because the system checked backlinks to estimate the importance of a website to rank it in search. This was later renamed Google and even later Alphabet, a term that we all use today. Back in 1999, Larry Page approached the management of Excite, offering to sell his search engine for $750,000 plus some shares in Excite. The total deal would have been worth around $1.6 million. At the time, Page wanted to get back to his doctoral studies at Stanford and figured that his search algorithm would increase Excite's revenues by about $130,000 every day. So if he implemented his technology and worked at Excite for just a few months, he figured he should be compensated for his time, and thus he came up with the $1.6 million price for what he figured was a one-off gig before he went on to bigger and better things. Excite turned down the deal after comparing the two search engines because the new search algorithm was way too fast. The way the management saw it, if a search engine instantly took people to the page they were looking for, the users would spend hardly any time on the internet portal website that they had built, and since advertising revenue came from people staying on the portal, management felt the new search engine would destroy the value of Excite. Google, I mean Alphabet, went on to be one of the biggest businesses in the world. While Excite limped along for a while, merged with a broadband provider, At Home Network, which together went bankrupt in 2001. Our next corporate blunder on the list is Lululemon. In 2013, high-end yoga apparel brand Lululemon had a PR disaster after a batch of its signature black yoga pants were found to be too sheer. Customers complained that they became transparent when the wearer bent over at yoga classes, and bending over is a big part of yoga classes. 
The recall that followed affected 17% of yoga pants sold in Lululemon stores that year and cost the company between 12 and $17 million. Now, we all say the wrong thing from time to time, but few have done so as prominently as Chip Wilson, the company's founder. He may have been too transparent in his opinions. On Bloomberg television, he addressed the recall by saying, frankly, some women's bodies just don't actually work for the pants. It's about the rubbing through the ties and how much pressure there is. This set off a firestorm of controversy, and his seemingly half-hearted apology on the company's Facebook page did nothing to calm the outraged customers. He eventually stepped down as chairman of the company's board, and sales have since rebounded. Because of Chip, I've learned to never comment on the appearance of my viewers. Okay, so next on our list is Frito-Lay. In 1998, Frito-Lay introduced Wow Chips, fat-free versions of its Lay's, Ruffles, Doritos and Tostitos brands, which were made with Olestra, a fat substitute, which unfortunately acted as a laxative when people ate too much of it. Sales initially um, exploded, making these snacks the best-selling new product in the United States the year of their introduction. But given the problems they caused and the media storm around the unpleasant side effects, sales quickly began to decline. An FDA-mandated health warning label was added to products containing Alestra, which read, Alestra may cause abdominal cramping and loose stools. Alestra inhibits the absorption of some vitamins and other nutrients. Vitamins A, D, E and K have been added. Now, I'm no Don Draper, but from an advertising perspective, that just doesn't work. No amount of added vitamins makes up for the first sentence in that statement. No long-term damage was done to Frito-Lay as a brand. They possibly did miss the opportunity of introducing their own brand of toilet paper, but no one thought of that at the time. At number four on our list is Kodak. Kodak have a long history of developing and introducing innovative products. They built some of the most popular camera models of the 20th century, including the Brownie, the Autographic, and the Instamatic. The company's Kodak moment catchphrase entered the popular lexicon to describe an event that deserved to be recorded for posterity. George Eastman, the company's founder, pivoted the company's core business from dry plates to film and from black and white to color, despite these new product introductions hitting the sales of profitable existing product lines when they were brought to market. Decades later, Kodak blew its chance to lead the digital photography revolution, despite the fact that a Kodak engineer, Steve Sasson, actually invented the digital camera in the company's R&D labs in the 1970s. This technological leap was a product of Kodak's willingness to invest in R&D, but having the space and capital for innovation is not necessarily enough. Company management also needs to be willing and agile enough to make the most of the innovations that the engineering department develops. Kodak's leadership rejected the idea of the digital camera, fearing it would cannibalize their existing business of selling photographic film. 
As the engineer, Sasson, told the New York Times, it was filmless photography, so management's reaction was, that's cute, but don't tell anyone about it. Kodak's management instead focused on the flaws of early digital cameras when their competitors brought them to market, highlighting the early digital camera's slow processing times and low resolutions. Management didn't have the vision to see the utility to millions of potential customers of good enough digital camera technology. Kodak's rivals, of course, leapt at the opportunity, leaving Kodak to settle for pursuing patent royalties on a technology that they had developed and then squandered. Kodak's digital camera patent expired in 2007 and they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2012. The company emerged from bankruptcy in 2013 and continues to provide commercial digital printing products and services, motion picture film and still camera film. They licensed the Kodak brand to several products produced by other companies. Next up, we have one of the most famous botched product introductions in history, New Coke. After World War II, Coca-Cola had a 60% market share for cola soft drinks. By 1983, their share had declined to under 24%, largely due to competition from Pepsi. Pepsi was outselling Coke in supermarkets, and Coke only maintained its lead through its network of soda vending machines and sales to fast food restaurants, in particular McDonald's. Older consumers had become more health and weight conscious and had moved to diet drinks, and younger drinkers had started favouring the sweeter Pepsi in increasing numbers. When a new CEO took over in 1980, he told employees that there would be no sacred cows in how the company did business, including how it formulated its drinks. Coca-Cola tested out a new sweeter formulation, which overwhelmingly beat regular Coke and Pepsi in taste tests, surveys and focus groups. One bottling company even threatened to sue Coca-Cola if it didn't put the new formulation on the market. As a precursor of what was to come, some customers involved in the focus groups, around 10-12% to 12 of them, said that they would stop drinking Coca-Cola altogether if the new recipe replaced the old one. They suggested that the new recipe should be released alongside the existing product rather than replacing it. This was a warning of what was to come. New Coke was introduced in 1985 to coincide with the drink's 100-year anniversary. The launch didn't go very well, as journalists pointed out that the marketing emphasis on the new formula's sweeter taste clashed with previous Coke advertising, which touted Coke's less sweet taste as a reason to prefer it over Pepsi. Though New Coke was accepted by many Coca-Cola drinkers, in particular in the Northeast where it was first introduced, others, particularly in the southern U.S. states, resented the change. Comedians and talk show hosts made regular jokes mocking the switch. The company received over 40,000 calls and letters expressing anger or disappointment. A few months later, Coke bowed to the pressure introducing Coca-Cola Classic with the drink's original formula. 
Many people to this day believe that the introduction of new coke, which only happened in the United States, was a ploy to hide the switch from cane sugar to the much cheaper high fructose corn syrup. This change had, however, already occurred five years before the switch to new coke. In reality, new coke was nothing but a massive marketing error. While Coke had focus group information showing that people preferred the new taste, the company failed to take into account the bond its most loyal customers had with the brand. Next on our list we have Xerox, who in 1970 founded the Palo Alto research company Park, staffing it with the smartest, most creative men and women in the tech industry who were charged with coming up with new ideas that Xerox could eventually monetize. Park researchers developed numerous innovations like the computer mouse, the graphic user interface, what you see is what you get word processing software and Ethernet technology to network computers together. Steve Jobs and a group of Apple employees managed to negotiate two tours of Xerox Park in 1979. Xerox showed them around as Xerox planned on investing in Apple before its IPO, which would happen a year later in 1980. Larry Tesler, one of the Park researchers, remembers the Apple co-founder's barely restrained enthusiasm when he saw what had been developed at Xerox Park. The visit convinced Jobs that his new Lisa computer needed to incorporate many of the ideas he saw on his visit, including the computer mouse. Jobs replicated many of the innovations he saw at Xerox, and in 1994 even sued Microsoft, claiming that Windows had copied the look and feel of the Macintosh operating system, which he had copied from Xerox. Midway through that lawsuit, Xerox filed a lawsuit against Apple, claiming Apple had infringed copyright Xerox held on its graphical user interface. The district court at the time dismissed Xerox's claims without addressing whether Apple's interface infringed Xerox's rights or not, saying that this decision needed to be made by the Copyright Office. Apple lost all claims in the Microsoft suit, except for the ruling that the trash can icon and folder icons from Hewlett-Packard's New Wave Windows application were infringing on their copyright. The Xerox Alto computer that Jobs had seen in 1979 was way ahead of its time. It featured the keyboard and mouse interface that we still use today. It was networked, had cutting-edge word processing software, and other modern ideas like event reminders. Xerox senior management in upstate New York didn't care about what had been developed in Palo Alto. They looked at the Alto computer and just saw a complicated workstation that would cost $40,000 a piece. They figured there was no market for that. Xerox funded the production of only 2,000 machines and never went ahead with its commercial release. The only thing Xerox managers were interested in at the time were printer and copier innovations. Xerox, much like Kodak, had developed cutting-edge technology that they were squandering due to a lack of vision. A copyright lawyer told the New York Times in 1990, during the Microsoft lawsuit, that Xerox had waited too long to file a copyright infringement case and had to resort to a weaker charge of unfair competition. He said, 
I think it's unfortunate because Apple is running around persecuting Microsoft and Hewlett-Packard over things that they borrowed from Xerox. Okay, so last on our list is BlackBerry. It's not that long ago that the best smartphone you could buy was a BlackBerry. All bankers and lawyers and business professionals had one of these iconic smartphones with a keyboard and the little wheel on the side. It was nicknamed the Crackberry, hinting at how dependent people were on them. Obama famously refused to give his up when he entered the White House in 2009. Even when the first iPhones came out, they weren't very good. I bought an iPhone 3, which I still have today, and it was so useless as a phone that I went right back to using my BlackBerry and used the iPhone as an MP3 player. When the iPhone 4 came out, it had such bad cellular reception that it would only work if you held it a certain way. Apple fixed this by selling a rubber band that covered the antenna for $29, improving cellular reception. The original iPhone came out in 2007, but it didn't really function as a phone until the iPhone 5, which came out in 2012. BlackBerry had a huge lead and lots of time to build a better product, but they didn't until it was too late. When the iPhone and the similar Android phones first came out, the computer industry was moving towards bigger touchscreen displays, a trend that Apple jumped on with perfect timing. While all of this change was happening, BlackBerry was more concerned with protecting what it already had instead of developing new products. It's somewhat understandable too. The majority of big businesses and government organizations relied on Blackberries, which had much better security, reliable email, replaceable batteries so you could bring a few of them with you on a business trip, and you could drop the phone and it would keep on working. I had one that accidentally went through a laundry cycle, and when it dried out, it still worked. BlackBerry Messenger even managed to make a business device popular among young users as well. The mobile phone industry went through a period of rapid evolution at a time when BlackBerry felt it made sense to focus on its existing high-end business customers by making small iterative improvements. Being conservative and failing to see how the average phone customer might start to buy higher-end phones that did more was only half of the problem. BlackBerry showed hubris in believing that its customers would put up with a lack of innovation and still stick with them. They insisted, along with Adobe, that Flash would be the future of rich mobile content and delayed the release of a more modern smartphone until they had a chip powerful enough to handle the requirements of Flash. BlackBerry believed people would wait for its superior product or would put up with limitations because, well, it's BlackBerry. Business and government customers did hold on for quite a while, mainly because Blackberries were significantly more secure than the competition. But when BlackBerry finally came out with the Z1, which was actually quite a good phone, it was simply too late. App developers were no longer interested in developing software for an operating system that no one was really using. As good as the Z1 was, if you bought one, there were no apps for it. 
BlackBerry phones are now officially defunct and can no longer function. In January 2022, the company's CEO confirmed that the infrastructure operating system, software and services, which had been around for 20 years, were being decommissioned. The company is still around today and is focused on cybersecurity and encryption-based services for the medical and automotive industries. The story of BlackBerry shows you that no matter how much of a lead you have, you can still lose out if you don't change with the times. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend or two, as that will help the channel grow. Have a great day and talk to you again soon. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.